It's going to be a good morning. I've, in my study time and in, in just seeking the Lord with what it was that he was wanting me to communicate to the church, one of the things that we're going to be unpacking today is uh, what it means for the Christ follower to work out our salvation. More specifically, how to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. And as I was in my study time, I thought that it would be very appropriate to share a story, a very personal story with you all this morning. And I pray that it'll bridge us over to what we're unpacking today out of Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 12 to 16. Before I open up, let's bow our heads if we can in a word of prayer. Lord, I, I thank you for every person here this morning. I thank you for the, the, the folks online. I thank you, Father, for visitors that are here this morning, Lord, as we're here sitting at your feet, desiring to hear from your word. I ask and pray, Father, that you would just give us a deep, deep, intimate understanding of your word and that we would know how to apply it in day-to-day living amid dark days. Father, we give you this time and uh, we ask and pray that you would do these things in the, in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to share a story and unpack this with you this morning. Back in 1989, I was three years old, and I remember as a little guy, I had a, a, a dangerous infatuation. I loved the pool in our backyard. Loved it. I loved to go to the back and watch the water, you know, kind of move over the surface. And I remember one day... The gate to the back patio was unlocked. I figured it out. I don't know how I did. I was, I was probably about yay high. And so what happened is I walked into the back. I walked around the pool and I fell in. I remember three years old sinking like a rock to the bottom of the pool. And I've, I remember it vividly in my mind, looking up, bubbles are coming up and there was nothing that I could do. To, I had no idea how to swim. All I remember is seeing a shadow of a wild man running through the back, and it was my father. He jumps in the pool with his clothes on, scoops me up out of the pool, and he puts me on the pool deck. And after that incident, there was an ultimatum in the Castro home. The ultimatum was this, my brother and I would learn how to swim. The picture behind me that, uh, Eric, thank you for putting that on, is a picture of my brother and I. When we were, I would have been about four, he would have been about eight at Redlands Swim Team, out in, out in Redlands uh, High School. We would swim, and I remember my first day of swim in that pool, I was three years old, it was learn to swim, and I was in there with about eight other, eight other students that were learning how to swim. And I remember being in the pool, and the first thing that you would do is you would hang on to the, onto the, the wall, and you would kick your legs as hard as you could because you had to learn how to use your legs if you fell in the pool, to get you from one side of the pool to the other, or if you landed in the middle, how to get safely over to the other side of the pool. I remember children next to me screaming and crying to such a degree. I thought, if I can kick, if I can kick harder, I can drown out the cries of these children next to me that are crying. And I think it was more traumatic for this situation than the near, the near uh, drowning in the pool. And I mean that. I remember being in the pool and looking up, and my dad, he didn't miss it for the world. He's wearing his old 90s Levi shorts, 80s Levi shorts, his tank top, and he's got the 1985 JVC camcorder on his shoulder, filming the whole thing like a Fox 11 News videographer, watching this whole chaotic scene go down. 
And he, he had good intentions. He wanted to be able to share that when I was older as, as a memory and a way to reflect. And so time goes on. We start swimming, and, and swim at that level becomes very competitive very quickly. You start swimming against towns or, or teams in, out of Orange County, out of our local areas. It's like, wow, okay, this is, this is no joke. We have to do yards in order to perform well at the race teams or at the race events. It was when I was about four or five years old, I had this thought enter my mind. In order to be able to perform well at the big day, at the, at the, swim, at the swim event, I have to do yards. And I have to be committed to doing yards. I have to work out. I have to train. I have to be disciplined. I have to be committed. I have to show up. I have to participate in order to be able to show up on the big day and to swim well. The same is true for the Christ follower. We are actively, we are privileged to be able to participate in the decisions that we make in day-to-day living so that we would work outwardly what God has worked into us. And as we're unpacking out of Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 16, we're going to be reading about what it really means when the rubber meets the road to work out our salvation with fear, and with trembling. What that looks like in day-to-day living, how we do that and how we, how we uh, conduct ourselves. And this morning, as, as, as the body of Christ here this morning, there's going to be strong application points laid out for us today. And if you're here visiting and you say, well, I'm not sure how this applies to me. I'm not sure how any of this applies to me. There are going to be nuggets in the message today And they're not my nuggets, it's the nuggets of the Holy Spirit illuminating your understanding with regard to what it means, what this good work means, and how God continues to work out, and how we're called to work out what God has worked inwardly within us. There's three points that we're going to be unpacking today. What does it mean to really work out what God has worked into us? Secondly, the second point is just understanding how God works in us to will and then to act. We'll be going through that, and it'll make much more sense as we go through it. And the importance, and this is the crux, this is the important part, how to hold fast to the Word of God. What it means really to hold fast onto the Word of God. And as we go through this today, we're going to be talking about that last point, especially with regard to the days that we're living in today, with regard to dark days, with regard to perilous days, As we see evil, as we see depravity, as we see a people given over to a reprobate mind, according to Romans 1, what it looks like for us to be able to cling to the word of God so that we can live lives that are holy and pleasing unto God, day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour. So what I want to do first is go back to Pastor Rod delivered a great message. I was on my way back from Utah last weekend visiting my brother in a cute little town called Sugar House. Sugar House is a small little town in, in Salt Lake City. He swam there for four years. He was much more gifted at swimming than I was. And he swam there for four years, and he's lived there for quite a while. I came home listening to the sermon, and I was, in, I was driving. It was 9 a.m., and I was fist-pumping in my car as Pastor Rod was delivering the last half of chapter one. And I want to go over this, too, because contextually, this builds upon what we're going to be leading up to what we're going to be unpacking today. So in chapter one, Paul gives his greetings to the church in Philippi. 
And he goes into explaining to the church in Philippi the joy that he carries as he prays for the church because of their partnership with him in the gospel, in the advancement of the gospel. Paul says that the church in Philippi has come to his aid time and time and time and time again, according to Philippians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul then gets into detail about the affection that he has for the church, the Christ-like affection that he has for the church, and he has such a deep care, such a, a shepherd's heart for the church in Philippi. And he also goes into detail in chapter 1 regarding how the chains that he's currently in have served for the advancement of the gospel. How is that? How could Paul's chains lead to the advancement of the gospel? He breaks it down in three points. He says, well, first, this whole palace guard, whether they like it or not, they're exposed to the true message of the gospel as Paul is sharing on house arrest. What God has done in his life in the radical reality that Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for our sins so that we would be reconciled unto the Father and what it means with regard to the resurrection. And he shared the gospel from start to finish. And then there's a second thing that took place regarding to the advancement of the gospel. Paul would say that the brothers and the sisters in the Lord were encouraged. They shared and they preached the gospel without fear because of Paul's chains. And it was motivated by this. It was motivated by goodwill. It was motivated by love. It was motivated as they continued to stand and defend the gospel because they saw Paul's current situation. But then in verse, I believe it's 17, Paul would say also there was another group. The other group is where there was a bit of an issue. There were people that taught, that shared Christ, but they did it out of selfish ambition. They did it out of envy. They did it out of rivalry. But Paul says, so what? The most important thing is that Christ is preached. They preached Christ out of bad intention, but Paul says it doesn't matter. They preach Christ and praise God for that. So Paul goes through this and he goes through the information in chapter one and then he gets into encouragement. He begins to encourage the church. And guys, bear with me right now as I'm going just through this quick summary, then we'll get into what we're unpacking today. But with regard to encouragement, Paul encourages the church by saying this, it is more necessary for me to remain with you in the body than to be in heaven with Christ. Wow. It is more necessary for me to remain in the body with the church of believers in Philippi and with the body of Christ than to be in heaven with Christ. Because what would take place is that this was for the advancement, this was for progress and in joy in their faith. And now we get to the appeal. This is the doozy. Last week, Pastor Rod touched on this and unpacked this and drilled down into this, and it's rich, applicable for you and me today. And this passage is important for us to hold on to. Verse 27 to 30, Paul reminds the church that whatever happens, whatever level of persecution they would face, whatever difficulties they would have to endure, whatever challenges they would be up against to conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. That is so important for us to hold on to, to conduct ourselves in a manner as a body of Christ that is worthy of the gospel. It's timeless. It's important to hold fast to that. Paul then urges the church 
to stand firm in one spirit contending for the faith. That's almost like an aggressive term. Fight for the faith. Stand for the faith of the gospel without being frightened, without cowering back, without seeing the turbulent cultural issues that are happening and not to back down, to share truth in love and to go for it. That's a reminder for us as the church today. Go for it. God's equipped us with everything that we need in the days in which we live to do just that. In verse 29, it says, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to to believe upon him, but also to suffer for him. Sometimes what can happen is in our own thinking, we think that these things are mutually exclusive. To belong to Christ means that I'm not going to suffer persecution. Well, these things are mutually inclusive. To believe means that we're going to go and we're going to see difficult times. But then he encourages them with this. He says, I know what you're going through. He weaves in his personal challenges, the persecution, the the challenging times that he's gone through. He says, I know about that. I've been there. And I'm in that right now. And he encouraged them to say, to remind them that it is a privilege. Now we get into chapter two, first half of chapter two, verses one through 11. In this section, Paul is reminding the church of how we are to conduct ourselves as the body of Christ. He speaks about this important theme about what it means to have the attitude of Christ. But then he gets even more granular. He gets even more detailed. He gets even more specific. He says, you are to exercise humility as Christ exercised humility. And you are to be unified. You are to love one another. And this is how we stand strong amid internal conflict. In perilous times, as Satan tries to pull apart and wreck what God calls is sacred with regard to the body of Christ, it's important that we look to this passage and remember how we are to conduct ourselves as a body of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says that something has happened within you. Something incredible has happened within you. There is a fruit that has been produced from your salvation in and through the work of the Spirit of God. He speaks about encouragement, comfort, fellowship, tenderness, and compassion. So in light of all of this, Paul is reminding the church, these things have been deposited into you in and through the divine work of God and in and through your salvation. Live it out. Work it out. Live these things out on a day-to-day basis so that you would live a life that is holy and pleasing unto the Lord. And then, are you guys ready for this? This is, this is the grand finale. This is, this is the wrap-up that Paul gives. He gives the real-life application for how we are to live. He uses the example of Christ. I'm going to read this aloud to you. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 5-11. through 11. Paul would say, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Think about that. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man He humbled himself as a man, I'm sorry. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now here comes a declaration. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Amen. 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 And this brings us to what we're unpacking today. If you're able to stand, I'm going to ask that you can stand to your feet. We're going to do the, we have the privilege of reading public scripture out in, in public and to fill God's house with his word. It's a privilege. I'm going to read verses 12, and I'm going to read verses 14 and verse 16. The one thing I will ask is if you can read verse 13 and verse 15 aloud, and I'll kick us off here. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. And then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. You may be seated. Thank you. Okay. Now it's time for our deep dive into verse 12, going back into verse 12. Paul uses this term. He uses this term, therefore. So Paul is saying with everything that I just talked about, pulling everything back in that I talked about in the first half of chapter two, with regards to what it means to live our lives as, as, as humble servants, what it means to have the attitude of Christ, this is how you now are to conduct yourselves. Paul says that, first off, he commends the obedience of the church in Philippi, whether Paul is present, whether he's in prison. He commends their obedience. And he urges them to continue to work something out. This is huge. He, continues to, he urges them to continue to work out their salvation with fear and with trembling. Let's pause there for a moment. Let's talk for a moment about what Paul's not saying. Paul is not telling the church to work for their salvation. It's very important. He's not telling the church to work at their salvation. That would contradict the entirety of the gospel. Paul is urging the church to work out what God has worked into them, to work out their salvation. I want to share something with you, and I love going back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is so rich. And when you see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy declared by the Old Testament prophets, many of which have come to pass, some have not yet. But we know how the story ends. God spoke into the future through his prophets. Now check this out. This is out of Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. I'm sorry, 36 verses 26 to 27. As I unpack this, think about this concept. This is the ultimate, the ultimate divine internal construction project that takes place within the human soul. Listen to this. It says, I will give you, this is the Lord speaking through Ezekiel the prophet. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove, you, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my laws and my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This was written over 600 years prior to the birth of Christ. It gives you goosebumps, doesn't it? It's incredible. 600 years prior to the birth of Christ, this was penned by the prophet Ezekiel. Now, let's go even further into this for a moment. 
This same promise, which is a new covenant promise touched on within the Old Testament, is available for anyone who repents of their sin and places their faith in Christ. This is a new covenant promise spoken 600 years prior to the birth of Christ. So what happens? The Bible says that the heart of stone is removed. The heart of flesh is inserted into that person. A heart that is sensitive for God and the things of God and to please God. And then God takes up his spirit, his residence, takes up residence within that person. This is a one-time work. It's important that we don't miss this. This is a one-time work referred to in Scripture as justification. This means that that person is acquitted of their guilt. We are guilty because of our sin. We stand in a rightful position before a holy God because of what's taken place with regard to this very act. Now think about the importance of this. It doesn't stop with this. This is incredible. This is supernatural. This is a a divine work of God. But when this work doesn't happen, the Lord doesn't say, all right, Holy Spirit, we got five minutes. We're going to pack up shop. Let's clean the place up a little bit. And then we're moving on to our next appointment. Absolutely not. The Spirit of God continues to indwell within that Christ follower, and he's continuing to mold you and shape you and change you and transform you into greater and greater conformity to Christ. That's incredible. We're in, we're in process. When you think about the 91 freeway, does anyone drive the 91 freeway? I'd say 80%. Some people are afraid to raise your hands because it brings up bad memories in your mind. It's okay. You can be bold. So the 91 freeway, it is a continued work. And God bless those men and those women that work all hours of the night and day to try to get that situation, you know, to where we have lanes that don't have potholes and things like that. The 91 freeway is a good example of what I'm referring to. I know it may seem like an earthly example, but, but bear with me. The 91 freeway is a work that's going to continue on. It's not going to stop. It's going to continue on until the Christian takes their last breath or until the church is raptured. It's going, to, it's going to continue on. Think about what happens within the life of the Christ follower. There is a continual work taking place within you, and it's not over until the day that you draw your last breath. According to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, listen to this. We unpacked this. Pastor Rod unpacked this a few weeks ago. And it reads in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. The good work refers to your salvation. And notice that there's a continuation here. It doesn't just stop. The e-brake's not pulled. There's a continuance here. Some might read this. As a little boy, I would read this, and I carried this attitude. Well, the Lord's going to do the work. I get to be passive. I don't have any part with regard to my spiritual development. I don't have any responsibility with my spiritual growth. I can put it in cruise control, and I don't have to participate. When I was driving home from Utah, visiting my brother Evan from Sugar House in Salt Lake City, I figured out on the way home how to use my cruise control. It's been like four years, and I finally figured it out, being on the road for 20 hours. So I, I figured out how to put the car in cruise control. And I realized that when the car was in cruise control, I didn't have to touch the accelerator or the brake. I took my feet off the brake pedal. I took my feet off the gas pedal. And I was looking around at the 15 at all the beautiful farmland and rural areas and 
just picturing what the lives of those people look like, you know, I just, I was able to kind of chill out. I was able to kind of relax a little bit. And by the time I realized it, I was 100 miles deep, 200 miles deep in cruise control. And there were some situations that got a little, a little sketchy being in that position. The same thing can happen to the Christ follower. We can take on an attitude. We can fall prey to, I don't have to participate. I don't have to do the yards, if you would. I don't have to put forth effort or commitment or discipline in the daily decisions that I make to honor and please the Lord. That's wrong. And we have the privilege, we have the divine privilege of partnering with God as he continues to do this work in and through our lives, this beautiful work of sanctification. And to work outwardly what God has worked into us, does that make sense? There's also another position that could say this, well, man, it is all up to me. I have to do it all. I have to put forth all the effort. I have to perform. I have to do all of these things. And it's all up to me. You know where that comes from? That comes from our flesh. That comes from a sinful nature that we've inherited. But all of that would be in vain if it was not for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is responsible for producing something, producing his fruit. And as we live that out, as we work that out outwardly, what God has worked into us, we're aligned with his will for our lives. And that's a beautiful thing. So now the application for us this morning, what does that look like for you? What does it look like for me in our lives as Christ followers? And if you hear this morning and you're hearing this and you're not a Christ follower, you may say, well, what does it matter to me? Well, we know this to be true. God desires that we live lives that are holy, pleasing, and honoring unto him. How does it look at work? How does it look when we lead people at work? How does it work in our communities, in our neighborhoods? What does it look like within the church? Is there an outward work that is evident because of the inward work that has been planted inside of us in and through salvation? Is that evident in my life? Secondly, what does it look like when I'm alone? What does it look like when I'm on the business trip flying solo? What does it look like when I'm home alone? What does it look like when I'm by myself, when I'm passing through the 15 on my way to Sugar House, I remember look, driving through Vegas, and I've struggled in my life years, years ago with addiction. Vegas is not the place for Garrett Castro to be. Vegas is not the place for Garrett Castro to be when he's by himself, especially. So what happens is I put the car in drive, and I, don't, I try not to look at the billboards. I actually had to put, I think, my visor down and say, no, 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 all the way through. And I made it to Sugar House, praise God, without any detours. What motivated that? What inspired that? I desire to be obedient because I'm responding in love to who God is and what he's done for me. I'm not perfect. There's things at home. I, I realize when I get home from work, my day is just starting. Right? I have to serve, I, let me rephrase that. I get to serve my wife. I have the privilege of serving my daughter. My day is just starting when I get home. And I need to humble myself. And I need to take on the, the servant role that Christ has modeled to us in scripture and be the servant that God has called me to be at work and at home. I want to share this with you too. Out of Romans chapter six, verse 19, Paul would say this, 
I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to, previous life, offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves to slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. So important. And what does it mean when Paul's saying, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling? Those are heavy words. What Paul is not saying, that work out your salvation with this overarching fear or black cloud of condemnation upon you. What Paul is saying is work out your salvation with an awe-inspired reverence for who God is and for what he has done in your life. That changes everything. When I was swimming as a little boy, I didn't want the medal. I didn't want the trophy. I wanted my father to pat me on the back and say, son, well done. You gave it everything you had. My motivation was inspired by love. You see the difference? Not because I need to perform a certain way in order to earn his favor or his love. Absolutely not. That wasn't my father's heart. How much greater should I desire to please my heavenly father? It's important that we hold on to that. The second point from verse 13 is what it means when God works in us to will and to act. This may sound confusing, but just let's unpack this for a moment. Notice the sequence in this. First, God works in you to will. Then God works in you to act. What happens is God will plant desires within your heart, and then he will give you the capacity. He will give you what you need to live out what he has planted within your heart. Let me ask you a question. You don't need to raise your hands. What desires have changed in your life after entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ? Think about before and after. Did you have any desire to to get ready when it was raining outside and to show up on Sunday morning at the church to hear the word of God? You may have, and praise God for that, because that's the work of the Holy Spirit bringing you, pulling you into this this building. Did you have a a desire to be enrooted? Rooted, again, is a great 10-week discipleship opportunity for men and women in the church that's currently, I think, midway through. You probably didn't carry that desire. After you have now entered into a relationship with Christ, there's desires that are implanted within your heart, and those desires align with his will. And he doesn't just leave it there. He gives you the capacity to act, to do, to execute upon that desire that he's implanted divinely into your heart. Psalm 37 verse 4 reads this. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Some people read the second part of that verse and they're like, right on, man. All right. Lord, bring it on. Bring it on. Lord, give me wealth. Give me health. Give me all of these great things. Well, those are blessings but we've perverted the text. The Bible says that we are first to take delight in the Lord. When you take delight in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart because those desires align with his. Those desires align with what he wants for you and he will give you the ability to exercise that. Praise God for that. And it doesn't end there. He does this because it's his good pleasure. It's his good pleasure to do that. It's incredible. Charles Spurgeon, he was known as the Prince of Preachers. 
He said this. He said, grace all sufficient dwells in you, believer. There is a living well within you springing up. Use the bucket, then keep drawing from it. You will never exhaust it. There is a living source within you. He's referring to the spirit of God. In verse 14 to 16, we'll continue on. Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not labor in vain. Now, Paul is providing practical instruction. Are you guys ready for this? Are you guys bracing yourself? Are you ready for what he's about to say? He says this, don't argue. Don't complain. Don't grumble. It's almost part of us says, wait, Paul, Paul, what do you mean? Like, give us more. Like, you built this whole thing up. Like, don't argue. Don't complain. Don't grumble. And this is important because the context of this, he's speaking with regard to the body of Christ internally. This is why it's important that we, we, we follow the practical advice from Paul. The enemy will do whatever he can. Please listen to this. The enemy will do whatever he can to leverage contention, to leverage arguments, to, level, to leverage disagreements, to leverage complaints, to leverage grumblings in order to rip apart, in order to tear apart what God calls his sacred. That's his bride, his body. It's you and it's me. He will do whatever he can to disrupt that, but it's important positionally to remember that we are many members of one body. Jesus Christ is the head. Although Satan may attempt to, to pull apart what God calls a sacred, it's important to remember that truth. And it's important to remember that when we refrain from these fleshly motivated activities, grumbling, complaining, arguing, when we do, I'm sorry, when we do those things, we are in direct disobedience to the word of God. I'm going to be vulnerable right now and share something with you guys. I have to keep preaching this, this text to myself daily at work. Church, home. This is the text that I want to share with you out of 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I have to preach this to myself daily because I can, be, I can succumb to grumblings and complaints about even others. I, 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 can, I can create, I can have a critical eye of people and I pray, Lord, please forgive me. Humble me, Lord. Strip that from me. I want to see people, Jesus, as you see them. Give me your eyes. Give me your mind. Give me your attitude and give me the mind of Christ, Father. We'll continue on in verse 15. What happens when we refrain from grumbling and arguing? The Bible said this is pleasing unto the Lord. And scripture says that we're blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then we shine like the stars in the sky. What's the distinction now? between the Christ follower and the world. The first distinction is this, is your position. 
Your position is in Christ. That's foundational for us to all understand that. The second distinction is this, is when my behavior aligns with what I believe. When my behavior aligns with my faith. You see there's continuity there. There's consistency there. When we're at work, in our neighborhoods, how we conduct ourselves in the house of God with the people of God. Is there alignment within these areas and within this? And that should be a distinction. I believe that we're all aware right now of of the days that we're living in with regard to what we're seeing happening right now. We are seeing an aggressive, charged acceleration of evil, wickedness, depravity. What's happened is scripture points to this. What would happen is is the Lord would hand over people to a reprobate mind. He'll hand them over. That's a judgment. And we see what's happening in our nation right now, and it's, Paul nails it 2,000 years ago, and the same is true today. We can become discouraged. We can become troubled. Isn't it hard to stomach the things that you see happening and hear about happening right now? You can go to Sacramento right now and spend two days up there. And you can hear the legislation being pumped through that area, and it's enough to make you not sleep at night for quite a while. There are things happening right now at accelerating rates. But with all this in mind, what happens is when you see darkness that has enveloped a people, that has enveloped a culture, a society, as Christ followers— when we live the way that we're called to live, when we work outwardly what God has worked inwardly in us, we shine and there's a distinction among the blackness at night. We shine as Christ followers. And I'm gonna invite the band up if, if we can, as we get ready to close. And as we're gonna wrap up verse 16 right now, this is, this is the grand finale. This is where it hangs. Paul says, it's important that we hold firmly to the word of life. Hold firmly to it. What does that mean? Don't have a soft grip on it. Don't have a relaxed grip on it. Hold firmly to it. There was a man named Eliezer. This is out of Psalm, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 23. Eliezer was one of David's mighty men. Have you guys read about these guys in scripture? They are fierce. They are empowered by the spirit of God, but these are men that were warriors. These are men that did not mess around. These are men that were empowered by the Spirit of God to win supernatural victories. Eliezer was on the battlefield with David one day, and they were taunting the Philistines. I don't know how that looked. I don't know if they were calling out to him like, hey guys, let's go. I don't know what it looked like, but what happened is the Israelites got freaked out and they ran away. This guy, Eliezer, stood his ground and the Bible says that he slew a great number, a multitude of Philistines. And God provided an incredible victory in and through the man Eliezer. And his sword was actually, his hand was frozen around the sword. He couldn't open his hand. The musculature, the tendons in his hand fixed firmly upon the sword. When I think about what it means to hold firmly to the word of God, we have been given the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the Bible says, that God's word is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. 
It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And this is what we are called to cling to. And we are called to cling to it with everything we have. What does that look like? My morning time, my afternoons on my lunch break, your evening time. What time we have available to saturate our minds and to meditate on the promises of God. We have access to it throughout our day and it changes you. It changes me as we work outwardly what God has worked into us. And it's important that we hold fast to this word, God's word, as we see days coming ahead where we see wickedness and we see evil somewhat seeming like it's prevailing. We have the book, we have the Bible that tells us how the story ends. We know how the story ends. The victory has been accomplished at the cross and in and through the resurrection of Christ. We know how it all goes down. We know how it finishes. But we have to do the yards, church. We have to do the yards and be committed to what God has called us to stay committed to. So in closing, we talked about what it means to work out what God has worked into us. How God works in us to will and then to act and the importance of holding fast to the word of God as we eagerly await the return of our Christ. Let me close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this morning that we've had with you, with your word. And and Lord, as we walk out of here today, I pray and ask that your word would continue to just remain on the forefront of our minds and our hearts, that we would continue to hold fast to what you have called us to hold fast to, your word. As Eliezer held fast onto the sword, that he had with everything he had. Thank you that you have called us to work outwardly what you have worked into us and that you plant your desires within our hearts and that you give us the capacity to act upon those desires. Lord, bless this time in worship, Lord, in your name.